0: I a thousand generations of Jedi Knights and the Guardians of peace, justice, and War, and of War of the Dark Welcome back to a People's History of the Old Republic. Last time we led the Wookiees in rebellion against their slavers on Kashik, We had to switch things up to complete the Geno Harridan quest and completed Mission Veo's loyalty quest. Now in episode 29, we turn into the greatest attorney in the history of Manon and discuss the big reveal of Revan's identity. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in legends. But real quick, um, recently I was lucky enough to be a guest on Podside Picnic, a podcast that explores science fiction, and the episode went live earlier this week. We talked about Star Wars, the Knights of the Republic games, And the origins of this podcast. Uh, Thanks again to friends of the show, Connor and Pete, for having me on. If you want to check it out, you can find Podside Picnic on SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts and look for episode 32.
1: So, Knights of the Old Republic, Part 7, The Duel on Manon and the Big Reveal. When we last left our heroes, they had just arrived back on Manaan after a whirlwind trip around the galaxy, freeing the Wookiees, completing the Geno-Haradan side quest, and tying up a few other loose ends. It began with Revan, Freyr, and Zalbar leading a Wookiee uprising against the Circus slavers and their allies on Kashyyyk. The group then landed on Manaan and picked up the Geno-Haradan quest from Hulas before departing for Kashyyyk, Dantooine, Tatooine, Manaan, Tatooine, and back to Manaan to get back on track. During those stops, Revan and his companions took out the hierarchy of the Hardan Mission got some much-needed closure on her brother, and we took up the Great Hunt 37 years later. As we pick up the story, Revan, Jolie, Bindo, and Johanni are heading toward the Sith base because we need to help Roland Wan retrieve the memory files of a Republic submersible probe droid captured by the Sith. In exchange... Roland has agreed to give Revan and his companions everything he knows about the star map on Manan, including its location. Before we can infiltrate the base, however, Revan is waylaid by side quests. The first is a Selkath named Nukol Boas, who is very eager to learn why the Republic has been hiring so many mercenaries recently. Nilko is eager to protect the ecosystem of Manan and worries that a change in republic policy might mean bad news for the world's expansive oceans. Shout out to the climate strike. Throughout history, the Selkath were strident environmentalists who worked to preserve the oceans and keep them free from pollution through severe punishments for violators up to, and including, death. Maintaining the fragile balance was even more difficult during the Jedi Civil War because the Salkath sought to maintain neutrality between the Republic and Sith the sell to both sides. Revan accepts Noko's quest because it also requires us to visit the Sith base, and we might as well pick up all the missions we need on the way.
0: Before entering the Sith base, however, we need to begin to get acquainted with the Manon justice system as we complete Jolie Bindo's companion loyalty quest. After the story of Andor Vex, Jolie opens up more to Revan about his past life with the Jedi, the tragic tale of his wife-slash-apprentice, Nayama, and her fall to the Dark Side during the Great Sith War, and his split from the Jedi Order. Bendo also talked about his exploits as the Robin Hood of blockade runners in the Yukata system, and even says that Revan reminds him of Nomi Sunrider. What do any of Jolie's stories have to do with his loyalty quest? Absolutely nothing. Revan's actions in Sunri versus the Auto City Authority, as the case was styled, because of course they had it styled like a case name, are meant to present the player with a series of moral and ethical gray areas that the player must navigate to reach a sometimes unsatisfying conclusion. We don't even have a canonical ending for the quest because there are no light-dark alignment shifts for zealous representation of Sunri during the trial. The trouble begins when Jolie encounters Alora on Manant. Alora is Sunri's wife, and she begs Bindo to help in any way possible because Sunri has been charged with the murder of a woman named Alasa. Thus, it's up to Revan and Jolie to investigate Alasa's death and serve as Sunri's defense attorney. Why is Revan permitted to be named an arbiter despite not going to law school or ever participating or ever practicing law that we know of? And the answer, according to Judge Shelkar, is that Revan is a Jedi, which is honestly one of the better reasons given to allow a layperson to serve as an attorney in a fictional setting, if we're being honest. It's good to get the trial out of the way early, because if you wait too long, Sunri loses the case and is sentenced to death. However, Revan and Jolie begin their investigation before it comes to that. They interview Sunri, Elora, and four individuals with knowledge of the events, along with an investigation of the crime scene. The story the trial tells is actually interesting, which makes it all the more frustrating that it is hidden behind so much monotonous running back and forth to get the parties to really admit what they know.
1: As the investigation unfolds, the real story becomes clear. Sunri is a beloved war hero who was seriously injured during the Great Sith War and received the Hero's Cross— the Republic's highest military honor for his bravery. After the war, he became a spy for the Republic, married Alora, and, by the time of the Jedi Civil War, was stationed on Manan. Elasa is an informant who Sunri was attempting to extract info from who turned up dead at the visitor's hotel with Sunri's hero's cross on her body. Raven learns all of this from dialogue with Sunri and Laura, but a Pazak player named Ganto Vass, says that Sunri and Alasa were carrying on an affair, which changes everything. After being confronted about the affair, Sunri decides to be honest. He was having an affair with Alasa and went to the visitors' hotel to end it, but when he found out she was a by, spy, shot her in the back and fled to the Republic Embassy to cover up the crime. Unfortunately, surveillance cameras from the visitors' hotel recorded the crime, and Ignis, the hotel's owner, saw Sunri flee after hearing the blaster fire. Worse still, Feareth Me, another P- Hazak player, saw Alasa carrying a lightsaber hidden under her cloak, which means she was also a dark Jedi. Finally, Glupor, a Rhodian, who was at the hotel on the night in question, admits that the Sith paid him to place Sunri's Hero's Cross medal on Alasa's body. Sunri Lee says that at the time his medal went missing, he believed it had simply been misplaced but that had ample opportunity to steal it. When Revan and Jolie visit the Republic Embassy, Roland Wan initially brushes their questions off until the Jedi duo hack the Republic's secure database and find the surveillance footage of Sunri murdering Alassa. After they admit to hacking the database, Roland will act offended that Revan and Jolie violated the law, but says he won't report the crime if they keep quiet about the footage. Right now, the only people who know that this security footage exists are Revan, Roland, Jolie, and Sunri.
0: If, given all this damning evidence, Revan broaches the idea of a confession, Sunri will object outright because the Republic would lose valuable culto allotments as punishment. Once the investigation is complete, Sunri's trial proceeds before the High Court with a Sith diplomat acting as the prosecutor. What follows is a complicated system that awards and deducts points for the five judges based on their personal ideals and how those align with the testimony presented. Revan's success mostly hinges on the thoroughness of his investigation and whether he wants to hang Sunri out to dry. In fact, it's extremely difficult to get a not guilty verdict if Revan doesn't get Allura or Sunri to admit to the affair before the trial begins. If no investigation is performed, Sunri is sentenced to death because Revan has no rebuttals to the Sith case. Likewise, Revan can just turn over the embassy footage and let the court sentence Sunri to death because he's a murderer. However, by admitting the video altogether, Revan can free his client by demonstrating that the prosecution has not met their burden of proof. If Revan chooses the path to innocence, he argues that Sunri was the victim of bad luck and a Sith conspiracy, and none of that is false. The Sith used the Dark Jedi spy Alasa to try and turn Sunri into a double agent. Alasa then stole his medal, and when Sunri wanted to call off the affair, Alasa was murdered and the Sith paid Glupor to place the stolen medal on the corpse to frame Sunri. Further, if if Revan argues for innocence and gains a certain number of points with each judge for his persuasive arguments, the Sith get hit with penalties and are required to subsidize some Republic culto shipments for a year. Now the moral gray area becomes clear. Revan can tell the truth about the security footage and have a former war hero die and the Republic will lose culto shipments. Even though that war hero is guilty of a crime. Or, Revan can overlook the tapes, win Sunri's innocence, and increase Republic culto shipments at the expense of the Sith. Regardless of the outcome, Jolie Bindo is fully loyal to Revan, though he's conflicted about the outcome of the trial and the fact that his former friend is a murderer.
1: Later, in Otto City Central, near the High Court, Revan meets another Shellcath named Shalys, who is worried about some missing Shellcath younglings, including his daughter. Shaelus asks the group for help because no one else will, and he's desperate. Revan offers to help, and the subsequent investigation reveals that an Erdonian mercenary was paid by the Sith to lure kids into their base and leave them there. The group heads back over to Shaelus, who asks Revan to break into the Sith base to find word on his daughter and the other kids. Technically, we've been to the Sith base once... But that was just using the landing platform to kill a guy for the Juno Haradin, now we're infiltrating the base proper. We use a key card like we did the last time, because we're not torturing any more prisoners for info, which is how you can obtain the passphrase. The base is crawling with red-armored Sith elite troopers, officers, and Dark Jedi, but they're no match for Revan and his battle-hardened companions. When the group arrives in the barracks, they encounter a Dark Jedi master who says that Lord Malak was most displeased, blah blah blah, it's familiar song and dance by now. Not only is this master a little tougher, he's also the head of all Sith operations on Manon, and is flanked by a couple of Selkath apprentices. It would seem we're getting closer to an answer as to those missing kids. The dark Jedi master is a formidable opponent, but in the end he dies like all the rest, and the Selkath apprentices could not be reasoned with. In the Master's Locker, Revan can find a data pin that will be helpful momentarily. Further on, in the training quarters, a Selkath youngling named Galas is dying after being tortured for information. Galas gives Revan a small pin and begs the Jedi to warn the others to flee the Sith.
0: Around the next corner, the trio finds four Force-sensitive Selkath youths, one of whom is Sasha, the daughter of Shalus. Shasha, Shasa, yeah. Nope, not not happening. Shasa says that they are happy to be one that they are happy to be with the Sith, and Dark Side Revan can gain some cool points by encouraging the kids to stay with their Sith masters, or can just murder them outright. You know, like Anakin Skywalker in the Jedi Temple. Our good boy Revan would never do such a thing, and instead redeems the wayward youngsters by convincing them that they are being manipulated by the Sith. Revan can either hand over Gallus's pin or present the Dark Jedi Master's datapad as evidence. One of the other Selkath kids recognizes the pin as a keepsake he gave to Gallus long ago, while the datapad outlined a plan to have the Selkath younglings throw a coup and install a Sith puppet government on Manon. Either serves as enough proof of the Sith deception, causing Shasa and her comrades to ...to flee the Sith base to warn the authorities on Monat. Revan Julie and Juhani then move across the base and find the recovered Republic submersible. They grab the memory core and head for the exits running into Commander Gran... ...and a bunch of droids who all die in a hail of force lightning, thrown lightsabers, and force-disabled droid. It's fun that we get to use a force ability that Master Arca mentioned and displayed in Tales of the Jedi... After we've killed or redeemed everything in that base, there's nothing left to do but head for the exits and into the waiting arms of the Manan criminal justice system once again. As the group is leaving, they are arrested and hauled before the high court to be tried for murder, breaking and entering, etc., etc.
1: We don't know all the basics of Selketh law, but it seems odd that the trial would proceed before their version of the Supreme Court and that the court can uh, sentence Revan to death without appeal. Even the U.S. judicial system isn't that crooked... yet. But we're being being—we're not being facetious either. The court will sentence Revan to death if he doesn't give evidence of the Sith kidnapping plot to the group's comically inept, publicly appointed arbiter, Boalas, or replace Boalas as arbiter. Normally, attorneys say that people who represent themselves have fools for clients, but in this case, it's far better than sticking with Boalas. While he means well, he's timid, and if Revan doesn't stop him first, will eventually resort to an insanity defense, prompting Revan to take up his own defense. Revan should always enter a not guilty plea, because a guilty plea or failing to enter plea both result in death. Revan can offer a number of defenses, though most result in a death sentence. Admitting they were in the Sith base on behalf of the Republic? That's death. Admitting they just wanted to teach the Sith a lesson? That's death. Throwing themselves on the mercy of the court? That's death. Claiming that they killed the Sith because they're a blight on the galaxy? Oh, you better believe that's worth death. Indeed, there are only two defenses Revan can offer that don't end in summary execution. The first is that the Sith offered Revan a job to lure him to the base, only to attack him after he refused to turn to the dark side. The second is that Revan and companions infiltrate the base to free kidnapped Selkath Revan can then produce Galas' pin or the Dark Jedi datapad to the court as evidence that the cell youngins were being manipulated by the Sith to stage a coup and install a puppet Sith government. With this proof in hand, the judges free Revan and his companions, then order the Sith expelled from Manon and their base closed. Sure, Revan can hand the evidence over earlier and end this raid, but we need another trial in this episode of Law and Order of Manon.
0: had to put my law degree to good use somehow. This is how I did it. Mm, bet my parents are proud. Despite the Republic also flagrantly violating Manan law, the High Court won't find out about the secret colto harvesting facility the Republic built at the Harakur Rift, for reasons that are about to become clear. Technically, even Revan doesn't know about it yet. We're just doing that omniscient narrator thing. After being cleared of all charges and congratulated on presiding over two trials of the century in a span of a couple of days... Revan and his companions go back to the Republic Embassy. We've done a lot for Roland Wan so far, uh, including returning the droids memory core, so it's time for him to spill the beans. Roland obliges and tells the group everything. Earlier in 3956, the Republic installed a top-secret, illegal, culto-harvesting station on the ocean floor at the Harakur Rift. The Republic did this with the permission and the help of some Selkath who believed that if the Sith won the Jedi Civil War, it would be very bad for all involved. The Selkath worked to keep the station secret in the Manan government and the Republic built it. The station was completed and began harvesting small amounts of Kul'to when they uncovered some ancient ruins. Juan posits that this may be the star map that Revan mentioned. Coincidentally, the Republic Embassy lost contact with the station almost immediately after the ruins were discovered. The Republic has been hiring mercenaries because they need to find out what happened, but none of the mercenaries return. Roland was so kind as to prepare a submersible for the group to use when they travel to the Harakat Rift to investigate. Before they descend, the trio heads back to Noko Boas to answer his questions about the Republic hiring mercenaries. Karth seems opposed to this as he believes it's spying on the Republic, which it is, but if he hadn't noticed, the Republic isn't doing too well in terms of policing itself, a point that Bastila Sean makes and Revan seconds. Revan speaks to the Selkath, who is relieved to hear this because he can work to cover it up in the Menon government. Noko is apparently a Republic partisan who serves in the upper ech- echelons of government.
1: The companions Revan chooses before descending to Hacker Rift are locked unless they re- resurface to pick a new one. We'll take Basla and Karth because we're going after the star map and going to take revenge on Darth Bandon. The submersible is slow as hell, but it gets the job done, reaching the station safely. Inside, there's a terrified mercenary who tells Revan everything he knows before hiding away in a sealed compartment. The station lost contact because the defense systems were activated and became hostile toward Republic soldiers, and the Selkath went insane with rage, killing everyone they could find. You know, normal deep-sea horror stuff. Revan, Bastila, and Carth press on and find a lot of hostile assault droids, one dead dark Jedi, and a scientist's memo which outlines how to survive on the seafloor. Not only have the Selkath gone mad, the Firaxian sharks that patrol the Hrakert Rift now attack any non cellcath on site. The group acquires the Enviro suit to survive underwater and a sonic emitter to ward off any angry sharks. There's also a human who hid inside a locker to escape the enraged Cellcath, and now refuses to open the door for anyone. This person is known as Whimpering Locker in the game and Revan can just talk to him and leave or a dark side Revan can put his lightsaber up to the door and ignite it, killing Whimpering Locker. The group then traverses the ocean floor, safely making the dangerous journey to the culto Control building. If Revan is not carrying a sonic emitter, the fraction sharks eat him and the game ends, but that's not the case here. After removing their exosuits, the group finds out Culto Control isn't much safer. They encounter two human scientists who are protected inside a force field and start the decompression process, which would kill Revan, Bastila, and Karth. Revan has 60 seconds to use computer spikes to shut down the decompression, or they die and the game ends. Revan also shuts the force field down from the computer terminal and decides to have a chat with the two humans.
0: Sammy and Kona apologize profusely and explain that they were just scared because they saw Feral Selkath tear their friends apart and the force field was the only thing protecting them. Revan lets it slide, and the pair begin explaining what happened to drive all the cellcath mad and make the sharks attack. According to Sammy and Kona, some workers were out on were out on the rift. Some workers were out on the rift when a giant feraction shark, larger than a Republic sub, rose from the depths and let out a telepathic scream of some kind. Both Sammy and Kona heard it, and it caused the Selkath and the sharks to go into a frenzy, killing everyone and trying to destroy the entire station. It is reasoned that this giant phyraxian shark is so big because it resides in the Harakat Rift, which appears to be the source of all culto on the planet. The station appears to have infringed on the shark's territory, and she sent her offspring, the sharks and the Selkath, to destroy it. That is why the Cellcath dubbed the giant shark the progenitor, and she stands between Revan and the star map. There appear to be two solutions to the problem. Kona suggests that Revan can unleash a lethal dose of of a shark toxin that will kill the progenitor, but also have unknown ecological consequences since the planet is entirely ocean. Whereas Sammy suggests that the problem seems to have been caused by the activation of the harvesting equipment, so if Revan destroys the culto harvesting machinery, that should cause the progenitor to retreat. Outside the obvious moral and ecological questions that murdering the progenitor would cause, there's also no good reason to do it in the game. Once Revan is hauled back to the surface, or once Revan returns to the surface, he's hauled back into court and is exiled from Manon for his crimes. However, destroying the machinery and preserving the Progenitor and the fragile Rift ecosystem gains Revan more XP and the thanks of the Cellcalf. It's also the obvious light side choice because we aren't going to murder the giant shark that birthed all life on Manon. The gang destroy the culto harvesting machine by blowing it up with fuel tanks, which causes the Progenitor to once again descend into the depths, clearing the way to the star map.
1: This is the point in the game where we are going to create a new save file because leaving Manan after fighting the fourth star map locks out certain side quests and NPCs, which we will discuss momentarily. New save in hand, it's time to step out onto the Hacker Drift. The star map sits all alone on the ocean floor at the edge of the ridge that drops off bottomless depths of the Hacker Drift. There's no temple, no computer to haggle with, and no indication of the Rakatan Infinite Empire other than the star map. Despite lacking protection and sitting on the bottom seafloor for some 30,000 years, the star map opens. With data from the fourth star map in hand and the progenitors swimming peacefully in the distance, Revan, Bastila, and Karth return to Rakert Station. On the way, Sammy and Kona thank the group for their help, but say they will wait for a Republic rescue team. As the trio approaches their sub, they are confronted by Darth Bandon, wielding a red double-bladed lightsaber flanked by two dark Jedi. Lightsabers ignite in preparation for the duel, and that's probably the time Karth realized he brought a blaster to a laser sword fight. Revan recognizes Bandon as the jerk who killed Trask Olgo and vows to avenge his death. A fierce lightsaber duel that also involved Karth and in some way ensued with Revan dealing the killing blow to Darth Bandon. Hopefully, someone erected a small monument in Krakert Station that read, Here lies Darth Bandon. He died as he lived. with This stupid name. After defeating Bandon, the group takes the sub up to the surface where they're promptly arrested. Again. They are then brought before the five judges of the High Court to explain themselves and the large explosions. Lying or trying to force persuade the court gets Revan banned from Manon, but if he tells the truth, he may be able to stay. Telling them about the Republic Station, the destruction of the machinery, and the preservation of the Progenitor ensures Revan's immediate release. A dark side Revan who killed the Progenitor finds out that the Huxian also killed the Kulto which is why you don't poison the habit of a precursor species.
0: Character profile, Darth Bandon. And better late than never, right? Though little is written of Bandon's life, we know that he was a Jedi Padawan prior to the Jedi Civil War, except that he didn't care too much for the Jedi Code. Bandon sought to give in to the powerful emotions like hatred and fear he always felt, and in 3959, 3958, he got the chance. When Darth Revan and Darth Malak returned to the galaxy and established a new Sith Empire, Bandon saw his opportunity and fled the Jedi for the rebuilt Sith Academy on Korriban. Finally able to give in to his base emotions, Bandon excelled and was soon considered a rising star by Darth Malak. In late 3957, Malak betrayed Darth Revan and assumed the mantle of Sith Master, choosing Bandon as his new Dark Lord of the Sith. In 3956, the newly christened Darth Bandon led the Sith boarding parties in a raid on the Indar Spire attempting to capture Jedi Knight Bastila Shan. Though Bandon failed to catch Bastila, he confronted and killed Republic Ensign Trask Algo, but that sacrifice prevented the capture of an amnesiac Revan. After the attack on the Indar Spire, Bandon continued his Jedi-killing ways until he was recalled by his master to track Bastila's journey after the Hawk left Kashik. Bandon chased down and confronted his quarry in Rackert Station on Manon, and that catches us up to his death at the hands of the same amnesiac Republic soldier he let get away on the Indar Spire. After his death, Bandon was beheaded by a group of Sith acolytes who preserved his head for hundreds of years using a big jar in Sith alchemy. Eh, It's like one of those heads on Futurama. The head eventually turned up on Alderaan, Trask Olgo's homeworld. And uh, right now, this is as good a place as any to discuss uh, why we call both Sith, Sith Masters and Apprentices Dark Lords of the Sith. The answer is very simple. Dark Ma- Dark Malick, Darth Malik is referred to as a dark lord of the Sith while a Sith apprentice as was Darth Vader. Also the title of an arc of Tales of the Jedi is called Dark Lords of the Sith and that's when both Exar Kun and Ulik Kildroma fall to the dark side. Now lords there could also refer to Kun and Marka Ragnos and we might be reading into the, in, we might be reading too much into this but we're still going to do it. Us?
1: Read too much into things? Never. So this is why we did a new save file earlier. Once the Iban Hawk takes off, dantween is locked out because the attack on dantween is taking place at the same time as the events on Manon. We will be able to finish any outstanding missions on dantween which is good since we got all of them, but we also won't be able to talk with any of the Sith students who have been redeemed on Korriban. Further, by going to Korriban last, we wouldn't be able to complete Karth's companion loyalty quest with his son Dust Still. But since this is a podcast and we have an ostensible canonical playthrough to complete, we're going to talk about those redeemed students and Karth's loyalty quest on Korriban anyway. Certain question options with companions lock here too. Obviously, there's missions as we said, but the HK-47 repair mission, which restores parts of his memory core, also locks. Luckily, we already discussed all of the secret the quest reveals during HK-47's character profile. Finally, there's Romance. A female Revan must romance Karth prior to meeting Darth Malak on the Leviathan or the option is foreclosed. In addition to opening up about his past and his loyalty quest, Lady Revan gets additional dialogue options where she can indicate an interest in Onasi, and where he can flirtatiously say he's going to take Revan over his knee and teach her a lesson, so Karth is confirmed to like it a little rough. No judgment here. Finally, after passing 11 dialogue checks, finding 3 star maps, and Karth saying he doesn't feel like talking about it 25 times, or more, he says it a lot, Karth and Revan confess their love for one another. A male Revan must likewise confess his love to Bastila before being captured by the Leviathan. After many discussions and helping Sean come to terms with her mother, Revan and Bastila both admit they have feelings for one another. Bastila is worried that giving in to their feelings will lead to darkness, but also wants to give in to her passion for Revan and the two kiss in the Ebon Huck. Bastila, fearing she had violated the Jedi Code, fled from Revan, and the two haven't spoken since. We will go into greater depth about both these romances and others at the Temple of the Ink.
0: That's where everybody falls in love here, apparently. The Ebon Hawk departs from Docking Bay 26C on Manon and jumps to hyperspace headed for the Sith capital Korriban and the fifth star map. Little do they know, the Sith have set a trap and are lying in wait along the Ebon Hawk's hyperspace route. When the ship was in range, the Sith sprung their trap, activating, activating the Leviathan's interdictor field and violently ripping the Ebon Hawk from hyperspace. The sudden jolt raised alarms aboard the light freighter, but there was no time to escape as the Leviathan's overpowering tractor beam captured them immediately. All ten members of the Ebon Hawks crew gather on the ship's main hold to discuss their dire situation. Onasi notes that the ship pulling them in is the flagship of his, mentor, of his former mentor, now mortal enemy, Admiral Saul Karath. The predicament seems dire, but Bastila suggests using information asymmetry to their advantage. The Sith don't know who's aboard and are really only interested in Bastila, Karth and Revan anyway. Thus, when the Sith board and take everyone prisoner, one of the companions will be detained separately from the others and use their special talents to escape. However, Zalbar is unavailable because a Wookiee would be far too conspicuous and Revan, Karth, and Bastler are out because they will be watched too closely. Instead, one of the other six companions must be chosen to free the others based on their unique skill sets. T3M4 has a backup memory unit so that he can... Sh- He can reboot and continue the mission after the Sith do a memory wipe and leave him for scrap. Jilly Bindo is an unassuming elderly human who can use Jedi mind tricks and force persuasion to get free of his jailers and find the others. Juhani is the exception here in that she isn't detained by the Sith, but instead uses her force camouflage ability to make herself nearly invisible and hide from the Sith troopers before infiltrating the Leviathan stealthily. HK47 also has a backup memory unit, so he can shut down so he can shut down and be taken to the ship for reprogramming before rebooting and finishing the mission. Candor Sordo will use special healing implants to survive a self-inflicted grenade wound, allowing him to play dead until the Sith move his body to the morgue. From there, he can complete the mission. And finally, Mission Veo is an expert at picking locks, and the Sith will let their guard down because she's just a kid. There's no canonical choice, so we're going to go with mission, mostly for how she treats the guards.
1: Location profile. The Leviathan. Originally built by Republic Cinear systems, sometime probably between 3962 and 3958, the Leviathan was an interdictor-class capital ship. Apparently, the Leviathan was the only ship of its class to come off the Corellian production lines in spaceworthy condition. I don't have any additional context for that fact, but it's part of the history ship, so there you go. When it was completed, the Leviathan came equipped with advanced weaponry, enough space to carry 48 Sith starfighters, and an interdictor field generator capable of pulling ships out of hyperspace by creating small mass shadows. It's not as large or imposing as many of the capital ships, but the Leviathan got the job done. The reason for its less imposing size it was because it was built when the Republic shifted to much smaller capital ships to increase overall ship production to combat the Mandalorians and then to rebuild after Revan stole the Republic's fleet. That's why Bastila Shan captains a hammerhead cruiser and not a larger flagship. Despite its relatively small size, Leviathan didn't lack for firepower as its 20 quad cannons were used to blast numerous worlds into submission. Admiral Saul Karath used the Leviathan as his flagship after its completion, and the ship fought for the Republic Navy until Karath's defection in early 3958. Once Karath switched sides, the Leviathan became Darth Malak's flagship, though Karath also served as the Sith fleet commander from the ship. Later, in 3958, Admiral Karath led the bombing of Telus four by the Sith fleet from the command deck of the Leviathan, successfully passing Darth Malak's loyalty test. In late 3957, the Leviathan was presumably the ship from which Darth Malak fired upon and betrayed his master, Darth Revan. After this, the Leviathan became the flagship of the entire Sith fleet. In early 3956, the Leviathan ripped the Endar Spire from hyperspace and subsequently led the blockade of Terrace. The Leviathan then led the bombardment of Terrace, leveling most of the world along with the rest of the Sith fleet. Finally, just moments ago, the Leviathan pulled the Ebon Hawk from hyperspace and captured it.
0: Once the crews made the shocking decision to allow a 14-year-old child to play the Trojan horse in this plan, the Ebon Hawk is tractored into the Leviathan's docking bay. As the ship comes to a halt inside the Leviathan, an overwhelming number of shifts Sith troopers aboard and take nine prisoners. Everyone was stripped of their armor, weapons, and other gear and kept under constant vigil to prevent treachery per Admiral Carth's orders. Candorus, HK-47, 3 and 4 Jolie, Bindo, and Juhani were all placed in a single high-security cell, while Karth, Revan, and Bastila were each detained in force cages for questioning. Later when the Sith are searching every nook and cranny of the Ebon Hawk they find Mission Veo stowed away. When Sith troopers report the find to their commanders they note the young Twi'lek has quite the mouth. She swore and spit at one of them. She swore and spit on one of the troopers while the other reported she tried to bite through his armor and quote, "You should hear what she said about my mother." The story, end quote. the story then cuts back to Revan Bastille, and Karth as Admiral Saul Karath enters to begin the questioning and do his best Grand Moff Tarkin impersonation. Immediately, Karth and Saul begin arguing. Onassi calls his former mentor a traitorous murderer. Karath counters that his former protege should know the innocents die in war, then brushes Onassi aside by saying that his two Jedi companions are the real prize. Karath makes a few barely-veiled nods to Revan's identity, noting that he has a history with Malik, and then taunting Revan for not knowing the big reveal that's yet to come. When the three companions refuse to talk, Karath activates their force cages, torturing them with painful electric currents from all sides. After it becomes apparent that this won't produce results, the Admiral tries a new tactic, torturing Bastila while Revan watches helplessly. Revan agonizes watching Bastila's torture, but doesn't snitch. When Karath demands the location of the Jedi Academy where Revan trained, he replies that it's on Alderaan, but the deception doesn't fool Karath, who tortures Shan again. If the player is a female Revan, Karth is the one who is tortured, even if the two aren't romantically involved. Admiral
1: Karath then reveals that uh, the question about the Jedi Academy was a test because Lord Malak already knew its location on Dantooine and a detachment of the Sith fleet decimated it, leaving an empty graveyard. Bastula's torture continued as Revan looked on hopeless. In spite of the excruciating pain, Bastila begged Revan not to divulge anything. After Revan's repeated refusals, Caroth again changed tactics and had the guards torture all three companions until each lost consciousness from the unending pain. Hours later, Revan regains consciousness, and there's bad news all around. Saul is a sadistic monster who would have tortured them no matter what. The Jedi enclave on Dantooine was destroyed, and to make matters even worse, neither Bastila nor Revan felt a disturbance in the Force because the growing power of the dark side that is enshrouding them. Just then, Bastila and Revan are able to register a nearby disturbance in the Force, letting them know that Karath alerted Malak to their presence. Let's hope mission can save the day. The game cuts to the cell block where Mission goads a guard into moving close enough that she can pickpocket his keycard. With the keycard in hand, Mission bolts past the guard, locking him in the cell behind her. Nearby, a Rodian prisoner begs Mission to open his cell in exchange for an icebreaker key that that will open any door on the break level. Before you ask, the key went undiscovered because the Sith do not perform a full body cavity search. Not only is smuggling, contraband, in your ass a thing in the Star Wars universe, Rodians use whatever version of an ass they have to do it. Mission frees the Rodian, who then upholds his end of the bargain and hands over the icebreaker key. Mission runs off to the brig terminal, dispatches the guards, and uses the icebreaker to hack into the terminal. From this terminal, Mission Vow unleashes all hell, opening all cell doors on the brig and activating the brig's riot defense systems. Droids and automated turrets mow down Sith troopers while Mission frees the other six companions. Finally, Mission makes it to the detention level and is able to free Revan, Karth, and Bastila. All ten companions are momentarily reunited before splitting up again. Revan, Bastila, and Karth would make their way to the bridge control to open the hangar doors while Candras leads the rest of the companions to the Ebon Hawk.
0: Character Profile Admiral Saul Kareth. Born on Corellia sometime before 4,000 BBY, Saul Kareth was was the eldest of five children. From a young age, Saul had to act as his family's patriarch because his father was frequently away serving in the Republic Navy. As a teenager, Saul worked double shifts at the local weapons factory to provide for his siblings. Then in 3996, the Great Sith War began with Ulit Keldroma's daring raid on the Republic shipyards at Forost. The attack was a complete success for the Sith, but Saul's father was killed in the battle after his commanding officer Dace Golyard fled Forost. It's unclear how Golyard Gull- caused the death of the elder Karath, but Saul would hold a special grudge against him for 33 years, always believing Golyard to be directly responsible. After Saul got word of his father's death, he tried to join the Republic Navy but was too young to enlist. Without any connections to speak of, Karath was able to impress a fleet captain who appointed him as steward, as his steward, despite the age limitation. Karath served faithfully in the Republic Navy for many years, working his way through the ranks until he was given his first command, captain of the ship Reciprocity. It was during this command that he met ace pilot Karth Onassi. When Karath was promoted to the command to command of the warship Courageous, he brought Onassi along for the ride. In 3964, just before the outbreak of the Mandalorian War with the Republic, Karath was stationed at the Jebel Vanquo-Tarnath line near Terrace. There he fought the First Battle of Serja and developed a hatred of St. Karath, who he viewed as a traitor after witnessing the rogue Jedi fleeing the battle towards Mandalorian space. When Republic forces were routed, Karath led the retreat and mustered all forces to protect Sirocco from the Mandalorian onslaught. Despite a warning from Zayn Carrick, who had a forced vision of the attack, the Mandalorians unleashed nuclear annihilation on Sirocco. Carrath seized Zayn Carrick and arrested him for being a Mandalorian spy. Sorry. Um, during the ensuing battle
1: with the Mandalorians above Sirocco, Carrath lost his flagship after it was boarded by Mandalorian Neo Crusaders. The aid of a shackled Zayn Carrick, Carrath, Karthanasi and Dalin Mormon, they escaped the courageous in Onasi's personal ship bound for the closest system, Arcania. Before they arrived, however, they were rerouted and the group took part in the Adaska affair in the Omanoth system. There, Lord Adaska tried to sell dozens of mind-controlled Exegords that would have acted as a roving superweapon to the Republic, Jedi, and Mandalorians. Karth represented the Republic against his will and played a small part in defeating Adaska and was injured in the ensuing firefight. Later, in 3963, Saul Karath personally led a blockade of Corson to stop Zane Carrick from making it to the capital to try and prove his innocence. However, the new AI the Republic installed to control defense was hacked and began firing on Corson, though the barrage was later stopped by Carrick during vindication. In 3962, Karath was patrolling in the Ethor system when he was able to capture Desguillard, who had been lured there by Carrick. Saul Karath was delighted to catch Gilard in preparation for a court martial that was 33 years overdue. Karath then fought with the Republic through the Mandalorian Wars and was promoted, but all was not well in 3960 when Revan and Malak took the remainder of the Republic fleet into the unknown regions after Malakor V. Karath was fully aware of how vulnerable the Republic was with only a slowly rebuilding navy. Karath assisted the Republic in these rebuilding efforts, but began to believe that they were no longer worthy of his loyalty. So Saul Karath defected to Revan's Sith Empire, along with many of the soldiers under his command, giving the Sith codes to bypass security systems at Forost, the first battle of the Jedi Civil War, in 3958.
0: Karath tried to persuade Carthonassi to switch allegiances, but that went nowhere. Karth remained loyal to the Republic and hated Karath for his betrayal. Karath's defection also meant that the Sith got his personal flagship, the Leviathan, an interdictor-class cruiser, which subsequently became Darth Malak's flagship. In 3958, Darth Revan promoted Karath to Admiral, giving him full control of Sith military forces and making him third in the Sith hierarchy. But Darth Malak needed a test of loyalty, so he ordered Karath to lay waste to a strategically important but largely defenseless Republic world called Telos IV. Saul Carath proved his loyalty with brutal effectiveness, using the Sith fleet to barrage Tilo's Four into a mostly uninhabitable wasteland. The attack killed or displaced millions, including Carthonassi's uh, wife and his son Dustil, and Onassi swore he'd take revenge if he ever met Saul Carath again. For the rest of 3958 and, thir- and into 3957, Kareth continued leading Sith forces into battle, racking up a string of impressive victories before the Sith advance began to stall thanks to Bastila battle meditation. In late 3957, the Sith were caught in a trap by the Republic somewhere in the Outer Rim, and Darth Revan's flagship was boarded. Kareth was aboard the Leviathan when Darth Malak gave the order to betray his master. After Darth Revan's supposed death, Karath continued serving the Sith cause under Malak's rule. In many ways, Saul Karath came to be Malak's second-in-command, even ahead of his Sith apprentice, Darth Bandon. In early 3956, Karath oversaw the attack on the Indar Spire, the subsequent invasion of Terrace, and the orbital bombardment that followed. Karath then introduced and vouched for the bounty hunter, Nord who informed both Karath and Darth Malak of the identity of of Bastila's mystery companion from Terrace. And that about catches us up on the life and times of Salkerath.
1: Once all companions have retrieved their gear that was, you know, conveniently stored in a nearby locker, it's time to move. Revan, Karth, and Bastila make a run for the bridge to a fairly uneventful trip past standard enemies until the group meets a trio of dark Jedi masters who are a little tougher than the other enemies. Not that much tougher, mind you, as they all die in short order, and none of them even told us that Lord Malak was most displeased that we escaped Terrace. The only real impediment is that the bridge door is sealed, and that means it's time for a spacewalk around the outside of the Leviathan to the airlock with direct bridge access. With the spacewalk complete, Revan, Bastila, and Karth enter the bridge and confront Admiral Karath, who is flanked by two Dark Jedi. Karth and Saul have one more shouting match, but Basilo senses Darth Malak's presence and the duel begins. Karth Karath acquits himself nicely in the fight, but is mortally wounded as Revan and Bastila finish off the dark-, the dark Jedi. Karth has the chance to execute his former mentor for all of his crimes, but Revan and Basil objecting begging Onessi not to give in to his hatred and rage. Karth decides to heed the words of his friends holstering his blaster. However... Saul so Karath isn't the type to die without being a huge dick on the way out. Karath called Onasi closer and whispered a secret, something Karath had subconsciously known since Terrace, but never consciously admitted. Even though Karath was right the entire time, he didn't know Revan's true identity until this very moment. Karath died laughing and coughing up blood, telling Onasi to remember those dying words whenever he looked at his supposed friends. Karath is, understandably, up- bit upset. Revan has no idea what's going on, but Bastila knows exactly what Karath said. Karth rages, accusing Bastila of being in on it from the start, along with the Jedi Council. Shaan begs Karth to relax until they can escape the Leviathan, promising to explain everything once they reach the Iban Hawk. He reluctantly agrees and the trio open the hangar doors before flaying the bridge.
0: Bastila, the Revan, and Karth face much stiffer resistance on the way to the hangar, but get good news from Candorus who says they are aboard the Ebon Hawk and ready to leave. The companions make their way through the Leviathan and eventually reach hangar con- control, a stone's throw from the getaway ship. So close yet so far. Moving down a ramp toward the hangar and into a narrow corridor lit dimly with red lights, Revan, Bastila, and Karth finally come face to face with Darth Malak in all his swaggering evil glory. The Sith master is tall, imposing, wielding a red lightsaber, and still wearing a skin tight red bodysuit he calls armor. Karth wastes no time and attacks Malak on sight, firing multiple blaster shots and yelling his trademark battle cry, "Down you go!" In return, Darth Malak easily deflected the blaster shots and used the force to push Revan uh, Onassi off his feet. Malak cackles, his gravelly voice reverberating with a harsh electronic tone. The Sith Lord taunted his former master, mocking Revan because he had not yet realized the truth of who he once was. At, at long last, Darth Malak will put an end to this game and reveal the truth to, to this amnesiac Jedi. Quote, even the combined power of the jedi council couldn't keep you from your true ident- couldn't keep your true identity buried forever could it then as if on cue the amnesiac revan ex- receives a vision through the force revealing the truth at last
1: the jedi do not believe in killing their prisoners no one deserves execution no matter what their crimes The Council would not normally accept an adult for training,
0: but this is a special case. They say the Force can do terrible things to a mind. It can wipe away your memories and destroy your very identity.
1: Tatooine. Kashuk. Manan Korriban. Revan visited each of these
0: worlds searching for clues to reveal the hidden location of the Starforge. The lure of the dark side is difficult to resist. I fear this quest to find the Starforge could lead you down an all too familiar path.
1: What greater weapon is there than to turn an enemy to your cause, to use their own knowledge against them? As you hopefully just heard, the force caused Revan to experience a very well-edited flashback to hints and clues left about his identity sprinkled throughout the game. He also quoted or otherwise acknowledged the hints and clues as they came up in the show's narrative. It's a reveal within a reveal, a reveal inception. Revan sees six segments of dialogue that happened since he woke up on the Endar Spire, and this adventure began. The first is on Dantooine, just outside the threshold of the Rakuten ruins, holding the first star map. Vassilus stopped Revan before they entered and told him that the Jedi don't kill their prisoners because no one deserves execution no matter their crimes. The vision flashes to the Jedi enclave during Revan's training, with Master Zahar Lestin emphasizing that the Jedi don't normally accept older students, but this was a special case. After crash landing on Terrace, Karthin actually cautioned a woozy and recently awakened Devon to look out for Dark Jedi because he's heard about the terrible things the Force can do to the mind. Rumor had it that the Force could be used to erase your memories and even destroy your very identity. It's not like the clues weren't there early and often. That flashback to Karthin is like the third line of dialogue that Revan heard after escaping the Endor Spire.
0: The Force next flashed... To the visions Revan and Bastila experience before landing on each world. Over these four visions, Bastila narrates, saying Revan visited each of these worlds when seeking the Starforge and then listing the planets. Revan's mind then flashes to his training, again flashes to his training on Dantooine. Master Ruk Lamar warned that the dark side is difficult to resist and worried that the mission for the Starforge could lead Revan down a familiar path. The vision returns to Bastila's dialogue outside the Dantooine star map ruin, when she rhetorically asks Revan, "What greater weapon exists than turning an enemy and using their knowledge against them?" Mm-hmm. Then, rapid-fire images appear of a star map opening and the fateful moment as Bastila and Darth Revan prepared to duel aboard his flagship, but were, inter- but were interrupted by Darth Malak's betrayal, which left Revan unconscious. Finally, we see the familiar Sith robes and mask of Darth Revan atop the Temple of the Ancients on Rakata Prime. As the camera pans around, Darth Revan removes his mask to reveal your character with the yellow eyes of a Sith Lord.
1: Once the vision finished, Malak tells of the moment he betrayed and usurped his former master. Months earlier, in 3957, the Jedi strike team boarded Darth Revan's flagship and Malak saw his chance. He ordered his ships to fire on Revan's flagship, hopefully killing both his master and the Jedi sent to capture him. Malak then reveals to Revan that Bastil was on the strike force and Revan is, understandably, having some trust issues right about now. Shan confesses that she knew the whole time but was forbidden from talking by the Jedi Council who reprogrammed Revan's shattered mind. Bastila explains that they couldn't risk bringing his memories back as Revan because the old Dark Lord might show up too. However, the Dantooine Enclave Council also knew they needed Revan's knowledge to discover the power behind the seemingly infinite Sith fleet, so they programmed him as a blank slate Republic soldier under Bastila's command. Revan, still hurt and confused by all of this, asks why the Council chose Bastila. Little realizing that their incredibly strong force bond
0: was forged when Shan chose to save the Dark Lord's life. Bastila pleads with Revan to understand. She thought that undertaking this mission would lead to his redemption, but Malak has had enough. The new Dark Lord is pleased that the Force brought them together again so that he could kill his old master in a lightsaber duel, just like the Sith Lords of old. Malik placed Bastil and Karth in force stasis and prepared to duel his old master. The duel was fierce with Darth Malik using his superior lightsaber skills, but Revan more than made up for it with his mastery of the force for it pouring force lightning and lightsaber throws into his former apprentice. Once Malik is injured enough, he will use the, he will use force whirlwind to delay Revan and flee deeper into the Leviathan's tunnels Revan catches up quickly using Master Burst of Speed and a second lightsaber duel ensues with Revan again gaining the upper hand only to be put in stasis by Malak, who is ready for the kill. However, Bastila appeared from the tunnels and blocked Malak's killing blow by throwing her yellow double-bladed lightsaber. This is quite reminiscent of the lightsaber throw that saves her descendant Satil Shan in one of the Old Republic MMO cinematics. Despite being outmatched, Bastila drew Malik's attention, and Jedi dueled Sith as the blast doors closed and locked around them. Bastila sacrificed herself to save Revan and Karth, who fled to the Ebonhawk and escaped the Leviathan. Revan and Karth will have a whole lot of explaining to do to the rest of the group, but that will have to wait for the next episode because we need to go in-depth on the reveal. Side quests, the
1: big reveal. It probably seems strange we would focus so much on the reveal, even though we've been making constant jokes about it and already spoiled it in episodes 14 and 20 and in every episode of our Night dollars the Old Republic run so far. The reason is because, despite our jokes, it's still the most important in moment, the most influential moment in the Star Wars Expanded Universe story. It's the second biggest reveal in the history of the Star Wars franchise, and even though the game is old enough to drive a car now, the reveal still blindsides new Knights of the Old Republic players to this day. Lead writer James Olin has stated that Bioware wanted to do a big reveal that was as shocking as Luke's parentage in Empire. Another in the long line of overt homages to the original trilogy films, Knights of the Old Republic's other lead writer drew... Carpathian said he, would, he also drew inspiration from the 1999 thriller The Sixth Sense when it came to building up the reveal. Carpathian endeavored to leave a noticeable trail of clues that a small number of players would catch, but that most wouldn't notice until the game laid it all bare with the reveal. Developers knew that the reveal had to, absolutely had to, include the same face that the player chose during character creation and that they saw in every dialogue sense. The reveal was meant to shock the player and change the way they felt about their choices during gameplay, but for many it went even further, changing the way they viewed the entire Star Wars franchise. Sam Witwer, the voice of Darth Maul and the face and voice of Starkiller, a.k.a. Glenn Merrick, has stated that the reveal both surprised and intrigued him because it presented a character who was between the light and dark sides. Witwer is apparently such a fan of RPGs that he is played the West End game Star Wars tabletop game. Kieran Gillen, the writer of two separate Star Wars uh, canon Star Wars comic series, wrote about video games at the time and had a similar response. In his 2003 review, Gillen gave a perfect summation of the importance of the reveal and the game generally. Quote, In short, Knights of the Old Republic takes something that's been merchandised, franchised, and branded to death over the last... 25 years and makes it magical again End quote thanks again to alex kane and his book star wars knights of the old republic for the aforementioned anecdotes and
0: quotes but it can't just be that the reveal was a really good twist that few saw coming that's obviously part of it but at the same time a plot twist based on the main character having amnesia and regaining their memories is one of the oldest and most played out tropes in fiction And we don't mean trope as in something that's always necessarily bad or cliche. We mean as a general narrative convention that helps convey a concept. That point notwithstanding, the question still remains, why is the reveal such a huge moment for fans? And how is this game considered the pinnacle of the Star Wars Expanded Universe when the narrative conceit that the game leads to is based on a cringy amnesia twist? The most obvious and correct response would be that the writer would be that writers can use any tropes as long as they implement it cleverly enough, but that it but that doesn't really get to the heart of things. No, the most compelling answer is that Knights of the Old Republic is so immersive that it makes the player feel as if they are Revan. For 40 hours, they've been told that they are a no-name amnesiac force-sensitive and that Darth Revan is this dead, evil shadow that looms over the galaxy, only to find out, surprise, you're actually the villain. The player is the reason the universe is so fucked up. The player started the Civil War. The player is a former Sith Lord who lost their memories, was saved by Bastila, and then mind-wiped by a Dollar Store Jedi Council. The player is Revan. You are Revan, and that's what makes the character so compelling. Everyone has their own canonical Revan. When we discuss, when we discuss Revan on the show, you probably think back to the first Revan you used, whether, the, whether you chose a, a male mm. Revan, a female Revan, or a gender non-binary Revan. You think back to the time you experienced the reveal, and that's the thing. Even with us discussing a canonical playthrough... The name Revan is still just a a vessel for your most memorable experiences in Knights of the Old Republic, and the time you got to really explore and inhabit the Star Wars universe and do everything you'd always wanted to. That's why the reveal matters so much.
1: That's also probably the reason a strict adaptation of Knights of the Old Republic wouldn't work as well as a film, though we know some kind of film adaptation is in the works. In April 2019, Kathleen Kennedy stated Lucasfilm was looking into the development of Knights of the Old Republic movies or TV shows, and in May 2019, BuzzFeed News reported that Disney and Lucasfilm hired Lita Kellogridis, who is in the process of writing an official Knights of the Old Republic film. Would a strict adaptation work, though? Obviously, there are thrillers like This Sixth Sense that rely on a big twist and are memorable for that reason, but it's may not work as well here, especially when it's already been revealed. The reveal in Night's Public works because you are Revan, and when the camera pans around that dark hood and mask on Ricotta Prime, you see the face you chose. That kind of reveal would be incredibly difficult to pull off on the big screen with the same kind of emotional heft, though certainly not impossible. In fact, there would almost be something thrilling about a big screen Night's Evil Public film where a small part of the audience already knows the twist is coming. Make no mistake, despite the reveal being ubiquitous to us as huge fans of the series, most Star Wars fans have never played the Republic, let alone know the twist. be interesting to see it play, played out, and if the reveal came, then became a wider cultural touchstone the way that Ned Stark's death and the Red Wedding did in Game of Thrones. Of course, the book readers and fans of A Song of Ice and Fire already knew that those two monumental twists were coming, but the larger audience did not, and when both events played out on the HBO TV series... Larger audiences love them. The reaction videos to Ned Stark's beheading from when the episode first aired are particularly great. Likewise, the Knights of the Old Republic reveal still shocks people who play the game for the first time in 2019. It's easy to imagine an enthusiastic reaction from the wider audience of fans to a well-done reveal in a Knights of the Old Republic film. It'd have to be a really good twist to live up to the original, but then again, what if they actually did it? We'll leave you with that <laughs> for this week. Thank you all for listening to a people's history of the Old Republic. Next time we are traveling to Korban, the heart of the Sith Empire to search for the fifth Star map to find Kart's son thus still to redeem a bunch of wayward Jedi and maybe even chat with an ancient Sith Lord. We'll also talk about the destruction of dantooine and probably visit the Yavin station, which was added to the game via downloadable content. Please rate, comment, and subscribe to FOTOR on Apple, Google, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thank you for the five-star ratings on iTunes. Ratings and comments help the show, and we really appreciate them. You can follow us on Twitter at FOTORpod or email us at FOTORpodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments, and we will answer them on the show. I'm at AthertonKD on Twitter.
0: I'm at LucasAmazing on Twitter. I will try not to end on a question next time. Thank you again, and may the Force be with you.